Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 287 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jason Sweat. Hello. We have a special guest filling in. That's Brian Hogan. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we have another special guest, and that's Cameron Dutro. Hello from sunny San Francisco. Now, it's been a while since you came on. You talked about internationalization the last time you were on. If people want to check that out, we'll put a link in the show notes. But do you want to just give us another brief introduction? Maybe tell us what you've been up to since that other episode? Sure. So um, still working for Lumos Labs. We make a product called Lumosity, which is an online brain training uh, program. You can get it on your iPhone, your iOS device, your Android device, also on the web. Um, And I work mostly on the platform team, so I'm still doing that. I'm still mostly working on internationalization and a little bit of performance stuff recently, too. And one of the things that kind of spurred, I think, this call is that I gave a talk at Rails RemoteConf called Hacking the Asset Pipeline um, because I had been working with the Asset Pipeline a lot kind of since I came on the show last. And um, it's, you know, the Asset Pipeline had been kind of a, a pain to work with sometimes and a pleasure to work with other times. And so I'd kind of compiled this list of you know, helpful tips and tricks that I wanted to share with um, the Ruby community. So gave that talk and then um, was uh, reached out to by Chuck. And he's like, hey, do you want to come on the show and, and talk about the SF pipeline? I said, sure. So that's the that's kind of the, the path to uh, the show number to the show the second time. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the talk and I thought it'd be interesting to, to dig into some of the aspects of the asset pipeline. Um, I do want to warn the listener that this probably isn't as prepared or cohesive as the talk is so you probably want to go listen to the talk as well as listen to this episode because this is going to be more of a conversation about the asset pipeline and and uh, what it does and how it works and why we have it and what we like about it and what we don't like about it so totally so do you want to give us kind of a brief introduction as far as what the asset pipeline is and what it does and maybe a little bit of how it works yeah yeah totally so the asset pipeline is the the Rails static asset build system. The reason that there's a lot of contention about it is because the asset pipeline does a lot for you, kind of just like Rails does. So, so in that way, it's actually very, it's, it's a very classic kind of Rails style. Like, you know, if, if Rails was to make an asset pipeline, it would look exactly like the one we have because of all of the convention over configuration, um, mantra and ideology that the Rails community has. Um, so, so that's that's basically the, it, what it is in a nutshell: a static assets build system. So it handles uh, compilation, so compiling things from SAS or uh, you know JSX or ES6 into JavaScript and CSS. It handles inlining, so that means like gluing assets together, so you only deliver one file to the browser instead of multiple files. And it handles like minification too. So like if you, I mean, there's a a number of, of different steps you can throw your assets through that will minify them. One of which is called Uglifier for JavaScript, um, which will rename variables to shorter names where, that, where possible, things like that. And then in CSS, it just removes all of the new lines and uh, spaces and things like that. So that's minification. The asset pipeline also does a couple other cool things. So it, it helps you, or it, it gives you live reloading and development. So if you change an asset in development and then refresh the page, that asset will get recompiled by the asset pipeline under the hood and sent to your browser. So you don't have to worry about you know, restarting your Rails server or running a build script to compile your assets. Um, it does a lot of other cool things too. I'll just touch on these really briefly. Um, like one of the things it does is it appends 
a, um, a hash digest onto the end of each asset path in production so that if you make an asset change uh, and then deploy, the asset will have a different digest, which means to the browser it looks like a different file, which will bust a browser cache automatically. So the, and the hash, by the way, on the end of that file is a hash of the file's contents. Um, so you're even at, like so if you for example if you go and then take that change out your hash your hash will be the same as it was before so any new clients will also um, won't have to re-download these assets again if you roll back for example so there's a lot of cool um, kind of functionality that has built in and um, I think that's that's pretty much all that I can think of that I want to touch on for that um, the the fact too is that it's there's a kind of a, an extensibility part to it as well where it supports um, a bunch of different preprocessors. So like I mentioned, you can process JSX and CoffeeScript and SAS and LESS and things like that with it. And you can also kind of write your own plugins to it. Um, they're called preprocessors that will take basically any kind of file extension, transform the contents, and then write that to disk somewhere. So it does have kind of an extensibility element as well. Does that give a good overview? It does. Um, so I remember when it first came out, I was like, oh, this is nice. You know, I can just write my JavaScript and it does all the right stuff to it. And builds it and it's super nice and then i got more and more into javascript and i was like oh okay i don't want to use CoffeeScript." and i you know there are really nice build tools in javascript and it just felt like i was more and more limited by it uh do you hear right. that a lot and 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 what's your reaction to that i'd also like to hear what brian and uh jason's experience is along these same lines sure do you want me to go first yeah go ahead Okay, so I mean, I not only have heard people talk about the problems they have and the limitations of the asset pipeline, I've experienced them myself too. So, like one of the, I think one of the big limitations of the asset pipeline is just speed. So at Lumosity, our big main um, Rails app, it's a pretty big Rails app, and our assets take, you know, if this is without any optimizations, our assets probably take over ten minutes to build, and you know that's. That's pretty bad. That, that takes. A lot. I mean, and I know that JavaScript solutions to this problem, JavaScript solutions to a to an asset build system would be much faster. So that's one of the big things that I see as a big problem in the rail, in the asset pipeline experience. Um, it, it also like configuring it can be pretty confusing because the config options are not totally obvious when you read them. Um, so so that's unfortunate, and you know maybe that's because Rails just <laughs> Rails doesn't like configuration. Rails likes convention, so maybe that's maybe we just haven't in the Rails community had that much experience writing clear config options. I don't know. Um, and I talked about the extensibility of asset pipeline, but it, it does have a fairly unstable public interface, and that's like you're writing your own preprocessor. You have had to convert it on every major version of the asset pipeline, um, and that that could be frustrating as well. Yeah, so the last the last couple of things, I guess it's it's a pretty complex code base as well. So asset pipeline uh, is mainly made up of, of a, it's made up of a couple of gems. Well, the biggest one though is called Sprockets, uh, and Sprockets is a really complex code base. It's kind of hard to figure out what's going on in there. There's been some cleanup efforts recently, but you know not necessarily as as much as kind of I would like to see. Um, and then like, the last thing that I have an issue with in asset pipeline is it's hard to debug. You know, you don't really know where to stick a binding.pry to find out like why your assets aren't building or why your assets are building incorrectly or, or whatever. I've always gotten the impression from working with the, uh, the asset pipeline that it, for some reason it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem as polished as the rest of rails. It always seems that that's the area where, um, 
I run into problems. That's the area where other developers run into problems. And and I was wondering because you'd you'd mentioned that you you know you've you've run into some frustrations. I, I was interested to know what is your uh, what is the biggest frustration that you have you have repeatedly with the asset pipeline, and how do you resolve that? Yeah. Okay. So that's a great question. I, I mean the the worst problem I have I think is is um, well it's it's kind of twofold for me, but I would say consistently the biggest problem is just speed. It's just an unbelievably slow compilation system. So, so I mentioned that speed, I think, was the biggest problem that I've had. And you know, that's not to say there haven't been other problems, but um, speed is by far the big one because that, like, whenever you're trying to debug something in the asset pipeline, trying to figure out, like, you know, what your assets want to compile or whatever, usually what you have to do is is do a bunch of of test compiling, uh, test pre-compiling, I should say. And uh, if that process takes seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, then you know you can be stuck in this really slow feedback loop. So that that's a lot of the the pain that I have suffered through in trying to 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 do certain things with the asset pipeline, and uh, I in the talk I, I do talk a little bit about how I sped things up in the asset pipeline or how our how our team sped things up it wasn't wasn't just me. Um, let me actually let me find my slides on that because I can I can list off kind of the things that I talked about here. Um, so so one of the big things that the asset pipeline or that Sprocket specifically suffers from is that that Ruby is not a great environment in which to execute JavaScript because obviously Ruby and JavaScript are totally different runtimes, totally different languages. Uh, so what the asset pipeline does to mitigate that problem in order to run things like Uglifier and other, other JavaScript tools, it uses an embedded JavaScript runtime called the Ruby Racer. And in JRuby, that's called the Ruby Rhino. Uh, which is a wrapper around a Java library called the Rhino, which is uh, a JavaScript runtime in Java. So uh, you have all these kind of levels of indirection. This is like one of the big reasons why a lot of people, I think, are moving to build systems like Grunt or Gulp or Webpack or something in order to do their static asset compilation because not only is it faster, it's also like native. It's not running through any kind of interpreted levels of, of indirection there. Um, so, so one thing you can do, though, and, and something that, that we used to, we got about a 7% speed increase here, was we used Node instead of the Ruby Racer. So if you install Node, on your system and just take the Ruby Racer out of your gem file, um, this other gem called exec.js, which switches between, kind of seamlessly switches between JavaScript runtimes, will automatically notice that you've got Node installed and use that instead. And that results in about a 7% speed increase, at least it did for us. Um, another thing we did was we disabled gzipping. So the asset pipeline is capable of gzipping all your assets, which is generally a good idea, except that doing that in Ruby is not as efficient as just letting your CDN do that. So, and if you don't have a CDN, then then you definitely want to keep this enabled. But um, we do, um, and so when we upload our assets to the CDN, whenever those assets are requested, the CDN will automatically serve them gzipped. So we didn't need to do that in Rubyland. I think that saved us a couple of percent. Yeah, it saved us about two percent uh, time. So we're up to about nine percent total. So not huge speed increases, but like definitely, definitely not not nothing, right? Like pretty significant um, when you think about like the overall time. Um, another thing we tried to do was use this thing called libsass. We have a lot of uh, a lot of SAS in our app. SAS being um, the, uh, the the CSS preprocessor language. The that's a bad word for it. It's it's a it's a well, who can describe this? It's a, it's a better CSS, basically. Yeah, it's it's a more powerful and forgiving CSS, but it has to be uh, transpiled similar to TypeScript or. CoffeeScript or something like that into yes. JavaScript or in this case CSS that your browser can actually run. 
And so, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so libsass is the C implementation of what used to be run in Ruby, and it's way wicked fast. Yes, exactly. So yeah, exactly. So libsass is like the, the C implementation, exactly. So we tried to put that in our gem file. That didn't work because of Compass and Bourbon, which have um, Ruby code embedded in, like they have to execute Ruby code whenever an asset gets precompiled, uh, which of course you can't do in a C context, or I mean, maybe you can, but it's, it's not something that's supported. So we, we had to abandon that. That probably would have sped things up a lot for us, though. Uh, and, and I think by far the most speed increasey best performance optimization we wanted to make was compiling assets in parallel. So if you can somehow you know, harness all those different cores of your laptop or your build machine, um, then that can really speed things up. And, and we, this is going to be tempered somewhat by the fact that it didn't actually work. But we saw like a 47% speed increase compiling assets in parallel. Now, I say that didn't work because it, it ended up skipping a couple of assets, and I ended up kind of abandoning that approach because it just was, I, just, I wasn't I was spending too much time on it. It didn't really make sense to keep going there. But if, if somebody out there is willing to pair with me to try and figure that out, that would be awesome. And I actually, and I should also mention, I think Sprockets 4 which again is the, the the gem that underlies the asset pipeline. I think Sprockets 4 actually does this better. I think it does compile assets in parallel. So so maybe the answer for us is just upgrade to Sprockets 4. Um, so so yeah, those are those are kind of the big things. I guess there's one more thing that we implemented, which was uh, asset fingerprinting. So um, what that does is basically skips the entire precompile process if your assets haven't changed at all. And the way that it does that is it looks at all your assets. So Sprockets exposes a, an asset load path, and you can explore all those assets. And then it reads all those files and throws them into a hashing algorithm and then writes out the resulting hash digest to an asset fingerprint uh, text file. And so the next time you run asset precompile, the, the same hashing is done, and then we compare the current fingerprint with the previous fingerprint, and if they match, you just don't precompile. So yeah, those are those like the five optimizations we tried, and and I think like for the most part they work pretty well. There there were a couple as I mentioned that didn't work. I think fingerprinting is by far our biggest speed increase because of course nothing actually happens if your assets haven't changed, and that that is like maybe the, that's probably seventy five percent of all our deploys. So so yeah, does that, does that give you guys a good a, a kind of idea of kind of my biggest problem with it and, and how that was solved? Yeah, absolutely. It was nice to hear about the gzipping, um, you know, while flooding those kinds of things to the CDN and other practical things. So I have a question. I work a certain amount with Angular, and there's kind of two ways to use Angular with Rails, and one way is to put it in the asset pipeline, and another way is to not use the asset pipeline but use a build tool instead and have a client-server architecture. And in my mind, it's it's kind of like an either-or type thing. I do it one way or I do it the other way. Um, and this might be a dumb question, but like, are those two ideas mutually exclusive? Like, Do you think it could ever make sense to use a build tool like Webpack and the asset pipeline? Or does it really just make sense to use one or the other? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I mean, personally, I think it makes sense to use one or the other just because I think that there's a lot of room for human error there. So, you know, you could end up including assets twice, you know, and because, you know, Webpack could reference an asset and the asset pipeline could, re could reference an asset. They could both end up compiling that asset. And then if, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're gluing all your assets together somehow into like one big JS file, one big CSS file, you end up including that stuff twice. And I think, I don't know about Webpacks, I haven't used it, 
um, really at all. But I do know that the asset pipeline will help dedupe those includes for you. Those those um, they call them preprocessor directives, I guess in the uh, in the in the manifest file and then the um, the JavaScript and uh, CSS uh, files that are included in the asset pipeline's precompile list. So I think I think it makes more sense to use one or the other. I, I don't know. Does that does that kind of ring true, or what do you guys think? I think so, because that's the way I've been doing it the whole time. Like I either do it one way or do it the other way. Um, I just wondered if maybe there was something that that I didn't know. My my experience has always been that uh, when when playing in Railsland, because I've been doing working with Rails since 2005, and every time I've deviated from the way Rails wants me to do something, it's always come back to bite me because, unfortunately, I end up maintaining my old code bases once in a while. Um, so, you know, I've forced myself to just, you know, do the work that I'm doing with React right in the asset pipeline. When I was doing stuff with Angular, worked right in the asset pipeline. So I've actually never tried, uh, never, never tried the other approach. I know there, there, are, there are colleagues of mine that have, so I'm always interested to hear to hear about the experiences with that. But I've always gone with, all right, the asset pipeline is here. That's the way I should do things. I've learned my lesson in the past. I'm just going to use the asset pipeline and and make it work. Yeah, and I think there's definitely some wisdom to uh, swimming with the current and and doing things the way the rest of the world does it. Because if you do stuff the same way other people do it, then you'll easily find you'll more easily find like answers to your questions because other people are having the same kinds of challenges that you are and likely somebody has solved your problem before. So I, I definitely uh, agree with, with, with that's a good idea. Yeah, I just have to say that at the same time, I mean, I've been playing with React a lot lately um, and I've done quite a bit of Angular. I have a podcast about Angular. And uh, I have to say that for me, it's not really, oh, well, I'm in Rails, so I'm going to do it the Rails way because... Um, especially with the Angular CLI and some of the React CLIs that are out there, they do a lot of the setup for you, and they go the other way. They actually use Webpack. And so I wind up being in a position where it's like, okay, so do I do it the Rails way or the Angular way? Do I do it the Rails way or the React way? It's well, in that situation, you're, you're arguably no longer even in Rails, right? Like the way I right. do it, I have a totally separate folder that is completely unaware of, of Rails, and so you kind of, you don't have to take that into consideration anymore in my mind because you're not even really in Rails anymore. Yeah, I generally kind? go that way. I actually, for, at least for the JavaScript and to some degree for the CSS, depending on which features I need in the precompile, because Webpack has some nice features uh, with modularizing your CSS and things like that. Um, and, and the way that it sets things up, sometimes I want the JavaScript tool because it's easier to hammer that out. But yeah, with the JavaScript, um, I will admit that I almost always uh, opt for the Webpack, you know, s automatic setup thing, whatever it is that comes with the JavaScript framework that I'm using for at least my JavaScript. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. 
and Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know, and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is 1000 bucks, and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at Hired.com slash RubyRoguesPodcast. What sort of things do you think you lose by doing that? What, what sort of advantages do you, do you lose uh, by, by keeping them separate? So the big thing that I see, and it's becoming less and less of an issue because most of the frameworks actually incorporate some form of DOM management, is the jQuery Rails integration that's kind of nice. And sometimes if you're building a simple or simple-ish app and you really only need the jQuery stuff, but you want some of the nice stuff that comes with React or Angular for manipulating uh, the front end, then... That, that's where I, I wind up making the trade-off is that, oh, well, I could do this really nicely with a remote true and some, uh, you know, slick little callback that Rails has built in that works with jQuery where, you know, then I have to pull the Angular stuff in another way. The other trade-off that I've seen, and I've only run into this a couple of times, is that I want the latest JavaScript and the gem that pulls it in and vendors the JavaScript isn't always up-to-date or doesn't have... Uh, the capabilities or other libraries that I want. And so I wind up doing some kind of hybrid browserify NPM mashup with the asset pipeline. And that's Ooh, there's, there's a question. Oh. There's a question I want to ask you, Cameron, is the management of JavaScript libraries. So there's, there's something that I really hate, which I call the JavaScript in a gem pattern, where there's all these gems that exist solely for the purpose of wrapping some JavaScript library. And I don't think that's a very good way to manage JavaScript libraries. And one alternative is to use Browserify um, with, I, I use this gem called Browserify Rails, I believe it is. And that allows you to use NPM to manage your JavaScript stuff. Or you can use um, Bower, but it seems like that's kind of falling out of favor more. So do you have any thoughts on, on that part of it, Cameron? I do. I do. Yeah. So I completely understand where you're coming from. The, the pain of like managing JavaScript dependencies, especially since like if you use NPM, then, you know, you, you get a lot of things for free. Like you get all of the dependency resolution, you get everything that comes with that. That's really nice. I don't think that that can really be overstated. That's pretty cool. I mean, just like Bundler and RubyGems, you know, you drop a gem into your gem file, you bundle, and it brings all the dependencies with it and just kind of automatically works and bundles up your load path for you. It's awesome. And, and I think that like we would probably be pretty well served if, if we used NPM to manage our JavaScript and Rails. And there's a couple of approaches that I've seen that, that do do that pretty well. I mean, personally, what, what I, I've never encountered, well, okay, I can't say never, but I frequently don't encounter a problem where I do have lots and lots of JavaScript dependencies. Most of the time, my Rails app handles most of the, and usually I'm sprinkling JavaScript on top of a Rails app. And uh, like, for example, putting React in there and you know, rendering some templates. And React doesn't really have any, any dependencies or, or jQuery or like any of the charting libraries. So even though I just mentioned how dependency resolution is great, and I think that's probably where we're eventually going, um, like Ruby and, and Rails, or I should say JavaScript and Rails developers will probably you know, be better served using NPM going forward. But like what I've done in the past is use this cool project called Rails Assets, which is um, 
So like you mentioned how uh, JavaScript, lots of ge these gems exist, and all they really serve to do is just wrap a bunch of JavaScript and then provide it to the asset pipeline um, via like a Rails engine or a Rails tie or something. And um, so having to maintain all that, especially if you're a maintainer of a gem like that, it kind of sucks because then you have to remember to go update the, the JavaScript whenever um, you know, that, that changes, and that means all the developers that depend on that gem are you know, going to, if, if a new version comes out and the gem is updated, it's going to be frustrating for them. Definitely a problem. I think that uh, Rails Assets, though, does a great job of automating that. So if you go to rails-assets.org, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's still up. Basically what it does yeah, is Yeah, I'm looking it at it provides, right now, actually. Yeah, it provides um, like automated gem builds for JavaScript libraries that NPM serves. So if you, and the first time you ever request a gem or request a version of a JavaScript library in your gem file, it will automatically build that gem and give it to you as a Rails asset compatible gem, which is, which is pretty cool. Like, so you can actually end up managing all your JavaScript libraries via Bundler. So like, whether or not that's a good idea, I don't know, but it, it's worked pretty well for me in the past, so I'm kind of a fan of it. And, and it does kind of let you bypass the whole NPM problem, you know? Well, yeah, yeah if people I can see are that. up on stuff, then it, it really does just work. Or if there's not that critical thing that fixes a bug or adds a feature, then again, you're fine. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't experience this every time I pull in a vendored gem version of a JavaScript library, but it does happen on occasion. Right, for sure. Yeah, the challenge is like letting Rails be helpful with assets and also maintaining like a sane separation of concerns. Because right. it's, it's easy to go too far down the path of like mixing the Ruby stuff and the JavaScript stuff. And things can get a little weird when, like I said, when you have all these uh, JavaScript in a gem gems like that mm -hmm. feels a little bit funny because it feels like the ruby stuff is too aware of the javascript stuff that it shouldn't be um but it doesn't sound like that rails assets project suffers from quite the same problems well i, I mean i think it's, it's it definitely suffers from i mean just like you said if, you're, if your rails app is too aware of your javascript then you know it, it kind of just feels dirty like you're you're mixing concerns where they shouldn't be mixed but you know that that's kind of what the asset pipeline was designed to do and it was designed to bring all of these disparate technologies like CSS and JavaScript and, um, I mean, even to some extent, like fonts and things. It was meant to take all that stuff and make it easy to integrate into a Rails app. Um, so, so, you know, like there's, there's definitely a lot of value there. And it's one of the things, like, whenever I go to another framework like, uh, like Django or even Node, you know, like one of the things I really miss is kind of just that automatic working setup asset build system that just kind of is already there and working. So, so like, and I, I do hear the problem where you know, vendoring JavaScript can be a pain or like having it in a gem can be like a real interesting, like a, a, a strange kind of crossover there. But I also think that it can be really handy when all you want to do is spin up a, a quick app or you want to drop some JavaScript and you don't want to have to figure out how to download it and include it and then put it in the asset pipeline yourself. Like if you were just able to depend on a gem from Rails assets, like, you know, Rails assets jQuery or Rails assets React, then that's that's just a lot simpler and a lot more straightforward and a lot more Railsy. I I hesitate to even use that word, but like a little bit more Railsy than, um, you know, doing it manually. Yeah, I would agree. And if I were doing a new project today, like I have this this potential project coming up that's like a warehouse management project. I don't see that as having like a lot of of fancy UI needs. 
And so if I were to do that project, I would probably just do a regular Rails project without a front-end framework like Reactor Rails or anything like that and just use the asset pipeline. Because I think for, for the use case where it works, which is like, in my opinion, most applications, it works great. Um, it's just for, the, for those applications that do do a lot of JavaScript where things get a little weird. But for, for most applications that don't need a lot of JavaScript, I think it's fine. It's always interesting when that topic comes up when we talk about applications that need a lot of JavaScript um, and applications that are, you know, the, these sort of modern and real-time types of applications you know, where, where you really are going to have sort of a dumb API in the back end um, and you don't even need the whole stack that Rails provides and then a, a very more heavier front-end application. We always hear developers going, yes, that's, that's where the web is going. And it's it's always interesting to hear from other developers that say, no, no, to be honest, you know, 80% of the work I do is boring CRUD applications. And so that's one of the interesting things about the asset pipeline is I I almost wonder if, you know, the asset pipeline was, in fact, meant to solve that problem, right? Just to solve that problem, of we, we need to add some JavaScript to our CRUD application. It's not – JavaScript is not the star of the show. Our, our, our forms – uh, CRUD application is the star of the show. I always wondered that because it doesn't seem like it's it doesn't seem like it's keeping pace with what's happening with uh, React and Angular and the the, the front end and and the JavaScript land. Well, think about it from this perspective. Like this, the same project I talked about. If I do this, I'm going to want to to spin something up in like two weeks and deliver a minimal product for the client. Um, and I don't want to like spend a lot of time on it and I don't want there to be a lot of like technical risk involved in it. And so I'm, I would definitely just use the asset pipeline in that case. And then there's also the consideration of like, if you know what you're doing, then it's not a problem really to, to integrate JavaScript frameworks and stuff like that. But you're not always going to be working on a team of like a bunch of senior developers. Often there's going to be a, a lot of junior developers who could very easily, and I've seen this a lot, very easily shoot themselves in the foot by using a bunch of these technologies together, and then you just end up with a, a big configuration nightmare. And if you're using the app, the uh, asset pipeline, then there's kind of just one way to do it, and you're not exposing yourself to, to all that technical risk that you might have otherwise. Yeah, you're describing exactly the way Rails works, right? You need something to you need a quick win. Bring up a Rails application, right? Right. So true. Yeah. So one thing that I'm hearing here, though, is that um, you know, if if you're bringing in a library that does a lot on your front end, you probably want to look at maybe some of the JavaScript tools for builds. And if you're kind of sprinkling your JavaScript in, I like the way you put that, Cameron. Then maybe you're looking at the asset pipeline, and you can make the decisions based on those trade-offs. Um, going from there. But one thing that I've seen um, that I ran into a while back was I decided, oh, well, I'm going to pull Angular in through the asset pipeline. And then all of the Angular 2 examples, if you go and look, at least the ones that are uh, updated first are all in TypeScript. And so I was like, oh, I want to use TypeScript for, um, for my stuff. And so I pulled in the Rails TypeScript or TypeScript Rails gem. I don't remember what it was. And it totally it died. Like I tried to compile stuff and it just 
it, it wouldn't play nice. And so I'm wondering, let's say that instead of TypeScript, which is probably fixed now, let's say that I'm writing my own transpiled JavaScript language uh, called ChuckScript, and I'm like, dude, ChuckScript is the stuff, and I want to use it with Rails, and I like Asset Pipeline to work with it, because, you know, CoffeeScript, who uses CoffeeScript anymore? So how, how do I build something like that so that it'll pull that in so that the frameworks that are out there that really want to use my particular flavor of JavaScript transpilation can do it and have all of the sprinkling in that I want at the same time? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That, that kind of gets to part of the talk that I also gave, which was like creating your own preprocessor for, for you know, whatever file format you, you happen to want to put in the asset pipeline. Uh, first, I want to say, though, I would totally use ChuckScript. That sounds awesome. Let's it get does it done. everything you want, I promise. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, cool. So yeah, I think I think that like this is, this is probably a good candidate for that for for adding this as a preprocessor. Um, so the description about how to do that is actually not mine. It was written by Schneems. He uh, he wrote that. It's a I can probably send you guys a link to this. Um, it's on GitHub. It's a Markdown file, and he just he describes how you write a preprocessor so that it works with all major versions of sprockets. So that's version two, three, and four. Uh, for the most part, four being the the most cutting edge. I think that's in Rails five, and you can use it with Rails four as well, um, but you know not without significant kind of work there. Uh, but basically, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty um, I don't know pretty straightforward interface. You you create an object that re- this is for uh, sprockets three and four. You create an object that responds to call, and it receives I think it receives a context variable or something. You pull some information out of that context, and in, including the source of the asset that you want to compile, uh, and then you would you would take the contents of that asset, throw it through the Chuck script uh, precompiler or transpiler, and then hand that back to the asset pipeline by returning it from that call method, and that gets written to disk, and you're in business. Very cool. So I would have to have Node installed if that's a prerequisite for the uh, transpiler for Chuck script. And then have the Chuck script yes. um, transpiler CLI tool installed as well, and then I just set up my asset pipeline plugin to essentially call out to you know the Chuck script command line, tell it which files to pick up, and then it sends it back to the plugin, and then it goes on to the next step in the asset pipeline. Yes, yes, exactly. That's right. And what you'd probably do, and you know, this is again, this is putting JavaScript in a gem, but you'd probably have like the ChuckScript dash Rails gem, uh-huh. which would handle all of that kind of um, interoperability for you. So it would take the file, transpile it using the CLI, you know, make sure you would use exec.js probably or something mm-hmm. like that to transpile. So that would be a whole separate, you know, gem. And, and all the person would have to do that wanted to use your script was is to just drop that in their gem file and then create some, you know, ChuckScript. Dot, you know, CSH or something. I don't know what the file extension would be, but you know, some file extension in their app assets directory. Right. So it wouldn't require me to install npm and then do np or install node and then do an npm minus g install JavaScript. All that exactly. Yeah. All that yeah. transpilation would just be in an executable JavaScript that does its job. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, th- and that's kind of the magic of the asset pipeline, right? Like you can just drop crap into your gem file, and I mean, this is also. Maybe part of the reason it's bad, but you can drop crap into your gem file, and then for the most part, it just works. Nice. By the way, the yeah. file extension for ChuckScript is .awesome. 
<laughs> oh, right. Sorry, I should have realized. Sorry, I have a. I already am using that for awesome script, so can't have that. I thought it was .cmw. I think that would make sense. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I sign everybody else's work. That's why it's CMW. <laughs> awesome. So I'm I'm curious what other because I described kind of some of the issues that I have dealt with the asset pipeline, but I'm really interested to hear from you guys what other issues you've run into, and maybe they're performance related. Um, and we, we I know we talked about performance. We kind of talked about any of the issue the kind of the issues that you run into when you know you want to re, you know add new stuff to your to your app things like that. Um, are there any other specific problems though that you guys have run into using the asset pipeline? I can go into oh go ahead go ahead. I was just going to say the only other one that I run into is that when I use some of these plugins, it doesn't always do hot reloading. Which if you use CoffeeScript oh. or something like that, then oh it just you know I updated I refresh my page on localhost three thousand and I get updated JavaScript and I don't always get that in development mode. Hmm, interesting. Anyway, what were you going to say, Brian? So the the biggest issue that I always run into is when working with junior developers, people with new who are new to Rails. I have, you know, I spend a lot of time teaching people how to how to use Rails and everything is kind of going along just fine. And these are people who typically have a background in HTML and CSS. Um so, you know, they they want to move into the back end and and the issues they run into right away are, "All right, I want to use Bootstrap. How do I use Bootstrap?" I know. I'll go find the Bootstrap gem. Wait, which Bootstrap gem do I use? Oh yeah. And, um, you know. Oh, and I have to now. I have to install this. And now, where do, I, where do I put these lines of configuration? And so, a lot of times, what I've seen is the the the, the people who are really excited about putting things into plugins, uh, you know, in a gem plugins for the asset pipeline, uh, aren't necessarily. Uh, keeping pace with things that are changing. We kind of see this a lot with a lot of the third-party things that are coming out. Like that's what that's what Chuck was kind of saying. Uh, uh, we've got an error that comes up, and a bug needs to get fixed or whatever. And so a lot of this just comes into the asset pipeline itself is fine, but all of the JavaScript add-ins and things like that seem to be a bit of an, a bit of an issue. They're either behind or they're buggy or there's some piece of documentation missing or it's a little bit vague on where we're supposed to put a specific configuration setting. And getting back again to what we were talking about earlier about convention over configuration. So I think that's the that's the number one issue that I run into when working with uh, when working with junior developers. And you know the number one fix I see a lot of people doing to get around that, they simply just copy links in from a CDN instead. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Does, and does that work for the most part? Yeah, it works because you know you just put them you just put them in the, in the they just put them in the layout file. Uh, yeah. I got Bootstrap. I got Bootstrap working. It's done. So they just kind of right. bypass the asset pipeline altogether. After well, did you use the, did you use the, the Bootstrap gem? Well, no, I couldn't get it to work. What did you do? Oh, there it is in the. All right. Well, I guess. But it speaks right. to a problem because that's. That's the thing is is we get so close to this technology. The more we, the more experience we get with it, uh, you know, we we see those problems and we can immediately fix them. We can immediately address them. But the 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 junior developers, the ones that are coming up, they're they haven't seen those kinds of weird issues before. Um, I'd like to see everybody who really knows this stuff uh, to do their part uh, and you know 
send send pull requests in to make documentation on these things better and um, give 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 more wonderful presentations like our guest has given and <laughs> uh, to just really educate people and help people really understand how to use the asset pipeline. Yeah. So, do you, do you think most of the problems that that arise with people who don't know the asset pipeline as well as just that? they don't know it as well or is it because it's too complicated or is there is there some other like root cause to that i can only guess but it's it's a lot of like what happens in other parts of rails right if you just stick with stock rails stuff things are pretty smooth but as soon as you start bringing in third party gems things start to get a little bit more interesting mm -hmm. and the more of those you add now think about what today's Think about what today's let's say let's say today's users want in their applications. So then think about what developers have to bring in to make those things happen. You know, we are we are we are a long way away from uh, a simple web application. Now we need lots of additional libraries to make things look good and make things work responsively and give people that nice real time feeling they're having. The more those dependencies we add to the project, uh, the the more trouble and compatibility issues we may run into, especially if we're wrapping JavaScript inside of Ruby. So that's my opinion on that, is that the, the more, you know, and that, that's not uh, too far off of an opinion, I think, because we all know that the more dependence we add to a project, the more maintenance headaches we're going to potentially introduce. Yeah, that, okay. So that makes total sense to me. I, I think that uh, that's true of gems as well as of, you know, JavaScript. Like you, yeah, you exactly. add more complexity. Yeah, you add more complexity to your app, and it's like, you know, that, that just compounds uh, the maintainability, uh, or you know, the issues of maintainability with that app, and I mean, we definitely have seen that at uh, Lumosity. Like, we have, I think, something like 460 gems in our gem file, which is just like, to me, is astronomically big. But we also have a lot of JavaScript in there, and it's kind of varying levels of you know professionalism that it's written in, because we've had a, a number of junior developers as well as senior working on the app for something like six, six or seven years. You know, so you kind of you you definitely build up this this mountain of technical debt uh and and like one of the things that i and this is totally off the topic of the asset pipeline specifically but one thing i would like to to say is that um, we as gem developers we as javascript library developers should always be thinking i think about the hygiene of our of our packages and what i mean by hygiene is making sure that we version them with semantic versioning so that you know breaking changes are obvious and also making sure that we don't do things in Ruby like, you know, patch uh, core classes like string or hash or array, um, you know, th things like that. And so just just a quick shout out to that. But yeah, I think that would that would, I think, in a lot of cases help with compatibility. Because I don't know how many times I've tried to track down a really weird bug to only to find out that some gem has patched, you know, string 2S or something. Exactly. And the the... The the hygiene you're talking about is does your code play nicely with others, right? Yes. Yep. Right. Yes. I mean, Sandy Metz says it the best. I think mean, one of her big topics. I think, and, and I'm going to be in trouble if I'm, I'm misquoting here, but I think she has really stressed that when you write code, and this is true any language, what you're really optimizing for is not necessarily speed. Well, at least not at first. Not necessarily speed. Not necessarily. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't even say readability so much as just making it easy to change, so that because you know that it's just it's going to be a fact of it's just a reality that you're going to have to go change that code at some point in the future. So by writing your code with that in mind, oftentimes you can produce 
um, I think I think better code that won't give somebody a headache down the road. So getting back to the 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 issue of of these uh, plugins, let's say you have a JavaScript library. Let's say you have this this brand new JavaScript library. And there's no gem for it yet, but you really want to use it on your project. What do you do to incorporate that in the asset pipeline in the most non-destructive and easiest way? Okay, so I think that's, that's a really good question. Um, the thing that I would probably do is first ask, is this library something that's on NPM already? And and if it is, right, then then I would just use Rails assets. So Rails assets dash package name and pull that in as a gem. I think that's probably more sustainable because then every time that a new version is published to NPM, you can request that new version and Rails assets will build that gem for you and deliver it to you. Um, if that's not an option, if it's not published with NPM, the easiest way is probably just to vendor it. And like, I don't like that that strategy so much because you don't really make there's no updates that you get automatically or or easily. Mm-hmm. But um, but that, I think that is kind of like the that's like your last resort. I think is to to vendor it. Yeah. So you so you're saying that Rails the Rails assets approach is is preferable to vendoring whenever possible. Yeah, I I think so because you you just get a lot of benefits from that, and most of the benefits are related to versioning. Fantastic. Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know, all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production. Then you need continuous integration. And I recommend Snap CI. Snap CI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks. And it works great to pull all of your information together about your application, make sure it's ready for production, let your team know if it fails. And overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at snapci.com. So I'm wondering, uh, Cameron, are there, let's say that somebody decides, hey, you know, I want to dig into the asset pipeline and really get it. Uh, What resources did you use to figure this stuff out? Was it trial and error or did you read the code or have you written blog posts or are there books? That's a good question. I, I have not really read a book or written blog post. Most of my experience with the asset pipeline has been just trial and error. Um, but I, I also did read the Rails guides. Like when it first came out in like Rails 3.1, um, there were also like a lot of release notes. And um, kind of at that time, I was I was like really excited about Rails 3. And so like I did a lot of reading about it, just, you know, all these various blog posts and things. I, I'm not going to be able to tell you which ones those were because that was like probably four years ago. So that was a while ago, but um, the Rails guides to the asset pipeline is pretty good. Like that explains what it is, how to use it, not necessarily how to write your own preprocessor, but it does tell you, um, you know, like what the config options mean, things like that. So I would definitely recommend the Rails guides. That's just, I think it's railsguides.org or something. I'm not going to remember how that, guides.rubyonrails.org. Anyway, so, so that's a great resource. Just in general, those are really good resources for learning Rails. It's written in, a, I think, a pretty conversational style. Um, you know, it's got a lot. It doesn't have all the information that you might need in there, but but it does have a lot. Um, and then the other re- the other way that I've kind of learned a lot about Sprockets, especially, is by actually uh, opening up the gems and looking at their source code. And I have to admit that it's not for the faint of heart. Those gems are really complicated. At least they they've been cleaned up a lot by by Schneems, Richard Schneeman. He's done a great job of cleaning those up. Um, so you know, recent versions like Rail of Sprockets like three point seven and, and forward are a lot cleaner to look at, easier to understand. Um, but but you know, you're still you're still definitely going to be wading through kind of lots of new concepts when you first open those gems. Um, so but but that is that is like the ultimate way of learning how something works by actually reading the source code. 
Um, so yeah, I think that those are the major kind of ways that I've that I've kind of played with it and, and learned about it. All right. Well, that sounds really cool. Sound, kind of sounds like you uh, learned it the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But you know, I, I, that means that uh, that means that means I think that that like a lot of the try, like the errors that I made, the issues that I ran into, are ones that I won't make again. You know. Exactly. And I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say that I think that, you know, what you did is, is super important, you know, cracking open this, the, the source code for the things that you're using is something that not every developer does, but it certainly is something that, you know, I encourage everybody, every developer to do every now and then just look at the source code for the things that you use and you rely on. And uh, it's there, it's there for you and you can learn a lot from it. Absolutely. That's so true. All right, well, let's go ahead and hit some picks. Um, Jason, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I got some picks. And my picks, by the way, pretty much never have anything to do with computers. Um, so just just be prepared, I guess. These are totally random things, and they pretty much always will be. Uh, my first pick is this book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And that was a really cool book because it, it teaches you how to draw, even if you think you don't have any artistic talent. And I went through and, and did their exercises. They kind of spoon feed you some some exercises. They have you draw this grid on a piece of plexiglass and stuff like that. And I was just blown away by what I was able to produce after I went through those exercises. So if you're into that kind of stuff at all, check out that book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And the other thing is this podcast that I that I really enjoy, although I haven't listened to it much lately, called Philosophize This. Um, philosophy is kind of like a, a notoriously inaccessible topic. Um, but this podcast, like the host is really awesome. He, he really spells things out in a very accessible way and makes things really easy to understand. And it's just super easy to listen to. So I really enjoy that podcast. It's called philosophize this. And that's my picks. All right, Brian, what are your picks? All right. What are my picks? Well, uh, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of, uh, you know, tutorials and things like that. And I got to say that one of the things that is saving me an incredible amount of time is this brand new markdown editor called Typora. And you can find it at typora.io. And it's it's a little bit interesting take on the what you see is what you get because you just type right inside of it. And it converts your markdown right to, uh, right to the HTML markup when you, you know, focus away from that section of the document. But the biggest advantage that it has is that it supports the mermaid diagramming language. So if you need to include flowcharts or state diagrams or other things like that in your documentation, you can do them in mermaid code as if you were doing any other kind of code fence and type or can render the actual document uh, or can render the actual diagram right in the document. When you export it to a PDF or an EPUB or something, you know, there's your there's your diagram right inside of the document. I think that's just fantastic. It's saving me so much time. I don't have to reach in for a vector graphic tool for simple diagrams and things like that. Um, and the other thing is, uh, in the month of November, uh, GitHub is doing this this game jam. This you know you got to you know build a game and submit it to GitHub for for judging and. Uh, I'm participating in that using a web framework called phaser.io. I love phaser for making 2D games, and I recommend anybody who wants to uh, – who's, who's never never written a game or never dabbled in making a game, check out phaser because it's a lot of fun. It uh, does a lot of things for you, but it, it's just – it's crazy fun to build some kind of cool games with it. 
Very nice. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is, is I just hired a new business coach and she has a podcast. So I'm going to talk about her for a minute. Her name is Jamie Masters. Um, she used to be Jamie Tardy. Um, and her podcast is The Eventual Millionaire. Um, and I'm super excited to get things going there. But uh, anyway, if you're looking for, she only interviews millionaires and talks to them about basically how they made their money and, and uh, you know, gets a lot of great advice for people who are looking to become millionaires. So if you want to check that out, go check it out. Um, she also um, turned me on to a tool. Actually, she gave me homework. That's what you get from coaches, right? Um, and the tool is called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L.com. And what it is, is it's a time tracking software. And uh, back in my days of being a contractor full time, I hate tracking time. Like, I seriously hate tracking time. But it's been really interesting. I've only been doing it this week, so yesterday and today. Uh, today is November 8th. And uh, anyway, so um, it's just been interesting to see, oh, well, I tend to get sidetracked in the morning. I didn't realize that until I started tracking my time. Or, oh, I don't really count this time when I start thinking about the time that I spend doing stuff. For example, the time I spend planning and fixing up my calendar and, you know, doing kind of the email triage I do in the morning for about 20 minutes. Because uh, that's about how long it takes me to go through the emails and go, okay, uh, archive, 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 quick response, archive, quick response, quick response, archive. Oh, that's an emergency. I got to handle that. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's been kind of interesting to say, oh, okay. So I, I actually spend this amount of time doing these kinds of things throughout the week. And so I'm really looking forward to what kinds of breakthroughs I'm going to have just from the standpoint of um, seeing how my time is spent. I, I used an, uh, another app called Desk Time before, and it kind of automatically tracked stuff, but it only tracked it based on the um, based on the applications and websites you're using at the time. And so if I'm playing Clash of Clans on my phone or something like that, then it won't pick it up. And with this, if I'm being honest, then I'll put Clash of Clans in and go, oh, I spent an hour yesterday, you know, attacking other clans or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been really, really interesting just to see where the time is going. So I'm, I'm also going to pick that. And then finally, uh, today is November 8th, which here in the United States means that people are going to be going out and voting today. By the time this goes out, we'll already know who the next president is and who our uh, congressmen and women are and who the senators are and things like that. But um, things have gotten really ugly during this election. Um, I've actually posted some things to my Facebook uh, timeline that other people took offense to. And, you know, and so I get the shame on news and all that stuff. And ultimately, you know, let's, I just want to, I guess, pick, be, be nice to each other. You know, regardless of who wins and who's president and all this stuff, um, you know, a respectful, I don't understand why you would think this, or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to picture in my head, you know, what your point is instead of, oh, there's one little thing about this thing that really ticks me off. Um, I, I think we can have some interesting conversations and come to the place where we understand each other. Um, I think this is important not only in the political realm, but, you know, on our development teams and with our neighbors and other people who we interact with at various levels. So really, I guess I'm just calling for people at this point. I know it's, this is going to come out a couple weeks after the election uh, to, to just come together and talk to each other and try and understand each other. 
Uh, camera. What about like tabs versus faces? Uh, that, no, that, that's no, no, that's don't. Sorry, don't. No, <laughs> next would be into Vim versus Emacs. We don't need to go there. Oh man. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Holy some, wars. Some things like tabs are just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, Cameron, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so first of all, Chuck, I really appreciate that um, you're saying, um, you know, no matter what your political beliefs, make sure you're nice to each other. Like everybody has a different point of view. It's super important to. Uh, to recognize that and not just, you know, shove your own discourse down people's throats or just, you know, be rude in general. So totally agree with that. And this has been a super heated election cycle. And I think a lot of us are just kind of ready for it to be over. Amen. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, I guess people are, a lot of people are a little nervous. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of over the nervousness now. I think I'm ready just to, to move forward. So anyway, I'm not um, nervous. We're screwed either way. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So my picks today, I've got a couple of them. The first one I want to pick is Ruby Together. So Ruby Together, it's at rubytogether.org. It's this uh, organization that uh, is committed to supporting Ruby infrastructure that um, you know that we rely on all the time, like Bundle, Bundle Ruby Gems, other shared tools, and they they um, they're doing great work. Like it's they're they're trying to raise money in order to pay developers to work on this critical infrastructure. So, um, you know, Rails generally has a lot of support from the community, but uh, Bundler, RubyGems, other shared tools, they don't necessarily have, you know, all that support because the people that, that maintain them have other jobs to do. They're, they're not paid to work on these things. So Ruby Together is a way to, to help pay for them to do that. Uh, so you can join as an individual developer or you can ask your company to join. There's different, like, giving levels that you can, that you can do. So I would totally recommend I became a, an individual contributor couple weeks ago and I just feel I feel really good about doing that because I, I know I use these tools every day and so does the company and we rely on them so like why not why not pay for them so that's Ruby together um, I also have to pick Lumosity Lumosity is a phenomenal way to entertain yourself and to keep your brain uh, trained and, and and elastic and ready for the next challenge so uh, I'm, I'm a we have a pretty dedicated science team here that tries to validate our, our games and prove that they are, um, you know, good for keeping your brain sharp. And we publish several studies, so I'm pretty, um, you know, we, we can't make the claim necessarily that uh, it will, you know, make you smarter or anything like that. But I can definitely say that the games are fun and that I really appreciate uh, working here. So I would definitely pick Lumosity Games. Um, and then I think my my last pick is going to be the Seattle Seahawks. I'm from Seattle, and I'm a huge Seahawks fan. So go Seahawks, and uh, hopefully they can beat the Patriots next week. I was going to make some noises about the Seahawks, and oh, man, but if they're playing the Patriots. Anyway. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> so if people want to follow up with you, follow you on Twitter, see what you're doing, anything like that, where do they go, Cameron? You can follow me on Twitter at Cameratron, C-A-M-E-R-T-R-O-N. I'm pretty much Cameratron everywhere on the Internet. Um, that includes GitHub, so my GitHub page has much open source projects on it. And where else? Yeah, those are the, the two big ones. Yeah, so that that's that's what uh, that's what you can do. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks again for coming. We'll put a link to your talk from Rails Remote Conf in the show notes, and we'll catch you all next week. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks, guys. <laughs>